the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Cliff Taylor. On this week's episode, we'll hear from partner at PwC Ireland, Ken Tyrrell, as he explains the factors driving the rise in company insolvency here. But before that, we calculate the cost of going green with Irish Fiscal Advisory Council Chief Economist Dr Eddie Casey. IFAC's new report entitled What Climate Change Means for Ireland's Public Finances calculates the cost to the state when it comes to addressing climate change, taking into account a range of factors. Eddie Casey, the Fiscal Council has been warning for some time about the looming costs of the climate transition, which you published a major report this week trying to put some numbers on that. Just take us through the uh, the headline findings of that because they're, they're quite striking. Yeah, so we can think about probably three areas in which the public finances are going to be hit by climate change. Um, and they're all pretty big. So the first is on taxes. So we know that we're, we're going to see a lot of taxes burn up. And that means uh, losses in revenues linked to how we tax cars, how we tax fuel, uh, petrol, diesel. If you think of new cars, they have vehicle registration tax tied to emissions. We have motor tax tied to emissions. So the less and less we use fossil fuels, the more we're going to see these taxes disappear. Um, and the, the impacts could be pretty big and they're going to happen pretty quickly if you believe uh, the modelling work that's done by University College Cork and Mary. And what we can see is it starts to ramp up towards the end of this decade if we hit our targets. So if we start to make the adjustments that we need to do to um, actually achieve our climate uh, objectives, then we'll see two and a half billion lost in tax revenues year on year. So a permanent hit of two and a half billion in tax revenues by 2030 on average. And then that rising to about four or four and a half billion in later uh, years. So, so the impacts are really big there. Then on spending, we know that the government is probably going to have to encourage people to make the transition to, mm. to move to a greener economy. Uh, households, businesses, they probably won't do it themselves because mm. it's not financially viable to do so. Um, and it requires a lot of money up front in many cases. If you think of moving to an electric vehicle, it's quite costly. Um, a lot of uh, lower income households won't be able to do it. Um, and also retrofitting houses uh, requires a lot of money. So these are things that are really expensive and it'll probably take some incentives. And the, the types of assumptions we've made, we think that it could be in the order of one and a half to three billion annually uh, on spending uh, increases. And th- again, this is a permanent increase in spending we're seeing for the for the years out to 2030. So taking the two of those together, you get to about five five to six billion even. And then we know that there's going to be other costs of uh, climate change. So one is the impact of damages we see from more severe. We can Mm. see the weather uh, getting wetter, getting hotter, but also more extreme. So we're seeing more kind of risks of flooding, of wildfires, and we have to build defences to to shore ourselves up against these uh, issues and also to deal with the aftermath of it, which the public will have, the state will probably have to step in to intervene on. And that could be another 500 million, but the uncertainty around that is massive. So there's all these different dimensions that we have to think about how it affects us. And they're all pretty big. Yeah, they're big numbers. I mean, if we if we look at this year's budget and there's talk of additional spending and tax cuts of 6.4 billion, your costs of the climate transition each year are, are roughly equivalent to that. So it's another budget. It's it's almost like driving another budget through the public finances. And if you think of the difficulties in negotiating any one budget and all of the the um, trading that we do on 
exactly what measures are going to be in there. This is almost like an entire one of those budgets and it's it's an ongoing cost. So it's it's likened to the the permanent uh, changes we see in tax cuts in terms of, you know, new spending that we increase, uh, that we are, we're going to pursue year on year. So it's really big. Um, and it, another way of looking at it is it's about half of the windfalls that we take in corporation tax receipts annually. So we, we think they're at about 12 billion now. Uh, if you take the 6 billion estimate that we land in and around on, then that's going to eat up into that a lot. And we've ha- had a lot of the debate around what are we going to do with the cumulative surplus as we run out to 2026? What are we going to do with 65 billion? A lot of that is hugely dependent on the windfalls we take in the corporation tax receipts. Sure. And we could see a lot of that start to disappear very quickly, just purely through having to meet these adjustments. Now, a lot of people say, well, maybe we don't have to make the adjustments. Maybe we can you know, hope for the unicorn solution down yeah. the tracks. Technology, like, in inverted commas. For sure, yeah. like like the Brexit solution, you know? Sure. Um, but there's no credibility to that. We have to plan um, and, and be serious about it. And if we don't hit our targets, then we're going to keep hitting these non-compliance costs. And, and they're pretty tricky. Uh, so the way they work is not like a standard fine. It's we have to purchase credits uh, from other countries this that are over-complying. wide system. Exactly. Generally, yeah. And a lot of EU countries, you know, First of all, the targets are getting more ambitious. Europe is uneasy. It's been through a summer of extremes um, and the targets are getting more ambitious. So it's going to be harder to hit those targets. A lot of other countries that do overachieve, they might want to just bank those credits and keep Mm. them because the targets get harder the further you go on and you take the low lying fruit Mm. um, and and then it gets harder to make those smaller adjustments to reduce emissions further. So they might not be willing to sell them or if they are, it might be very costly to buy them. And we think the cost there of just not hitting the targets and we take work from another paper by IGs and they suggest that annually it could be 350 million every year up to 2030 and then doubling. So it it gets pretty costly. And of course, you still have to make the adjustment at some point in time because you're breaking the EU rules. Yeah, best to make it quickly, perhaps. Just to, um, to reel back a bit and look at the different aspects of that. So in terms of tax, we're talking about things like, as you say, tax on on cars, tax on fuels, petrol and diesel, uh, all falling away as as the fleet turns to electric. Are the government going to have to look for other revenues from motorists to close the gap there? Yes, so this is one of the big questions. You know, we've tons of questions around this. Like, what is the plan? And that's what we keep coming back to. But one of them on the revenue side is, are you going to just rely on new taxes on old taxes, it could be like in other countries where they've looked at congestion charges, they've looked at distance travelled, and there's all types of questions around yeah. what's the fairest way to do this. You know, it depends on the impacts on rural people versus urban. It depends on poorer versus richer households. Sure, This is a really difficult thing to get right, but without the plans in front of us, we can't say whether or not the targets are going to be achieved with the, the measures they've set out or whether or not it is fair. Okay, so then in terms of uh, in terms of spending, you're saying households will need incentives, if you like, to adjust. So wh- what are we talking about? We're talking about to buy electric cars, to retrofit their homes. Yeah. What, what are we talking about there? So those are the big ones. There's a few. Um, probably the two biggest over the very, very long term is retrofitting okay. uh, costs because that's just ongoing. You're mm. looking at hundreds of thousands of households. Um, and then on the farming support side mm. is another big cost. So if you take those two alone, that's about 80 to 90% of the cumulative costs, taking all the yearly expenditure that we probably need out to 2050, mm. That that's the bulk of it. And the farming supports, 
we don't know, does the government want to support the farming sector in full? Mm. You know, if you have a, a farmer that's quite old and they're a beef or dairy farmer, they have to give up um, some of the livestock that mm. they're, they're holding. The question is, well, are we going to support them financially then, mm. given the sacrifice they've had to make? And do we do it on an ongoing basis? Do we do it for their mm. family? You know, we don't know. Um, so that could be one of the biggest costs. And we use the work from Chagask on that front uh, to get a sense of it. Um, on the other side, then, in the short term, you have the, the big move to electric vehicles. And mm. like these vehicles are expensive and it's very hard to encourage people to take them up unless the infrastructure is there to charge them, mm. uh, unless, um, you know, people are given some kind mm. of a discount on the cost. And, and that could be expensive. When we look at scrappage schemes internationally, like in Italy and France and things like that. And we try to base it around that, mm. you know, five grand up to 10 grand in the high cost scenario. Mm. And the costs do rack up quite a bit. Are we likely to have to up our game in terms of the changeover rate to EVs on your calculations? Uh, there are some incentives there already. Yeah. Some discounts for, for people uh, buying EVs are, are, is more likely to be needed? It, it looks like it. So the, the pace of uptake now probably won't get us to our targets. Um, and if you look at the, the work that Mary has done on modeling this, we can see that the, it really starts to take off in those later years, 2027, 28, 29, uh, 2030. That's when we start to see people just switching en masse. Okay. And, it, and if that is what is going to happen, which would enable us to meet our targets, then it's going to mean that we need the infrastructure in place, right? And we okay. need to encourage people to actually do it. And we need, um, so that may be some kind of scrappage scheme, for example. It, it could be a scrappage scheme. There could be other ways of doing it, like grants, subsidies. Mm. Um, but we just don't know again. Sure. Uh, so the government needs to start thinking ahead. And now more than ever, um, you know, because it's not just climate. And I might talk about the aging side sure. as well, because we have these two big challenges coming down the tracks. And, you, you know, the way I think of it often is, like the iceberg, you, yeah. you see it coming, uh, but we're kind of preoccupied with what's in the waters immediately below us. Right. Um, and unless we look up and try to change course a little bit, we're going to hit it, and it's going to be very costly to adjust later on. So we need right. to plan for it, and that, that's what the big challenge is. So you're saying the climate cost could be five to six billion. Am I right in saying... You've previously put the cost of aging in the next five, ten years at around seven to eight billion a year. Is that That's right, yeah. kind of order of magnitude? Yeah, exactly. So between the two of them, we're looking at maybe two, uh, two, two to three budgets right. to, to squeeze in somewhere yeah. uh, and to figure out what it's going to look like, what's the shape of the tax adjustments, what's the shape of the spending decisions. So there's really massive questions to answer. allowances in the government's existing plans for this do we do we do we you've said a few times they need to tell us what they're going to do are, are they halfway there quarter way there not there at all what, so again what does we exist we, we don't know so one of the big problems is we can't say how much of it is in the national development plan the capital plan right we can't say how much of it is in um, uh, you know private uh, decisions that they'll leave up to households how much of it is going to be forced through in terms of new regulations that say ban uh, fossil fuel cars, for example. Yeah. We just don't know. Um, and like, I suppose one thing I really want to stress at this point is this is a bit doom and gloom. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's going to be costly, but there are benefits and th that shouldn't be lost in the debate. Yeah. We know that we'd be moving to a society with, you know, less pollution, uh, greater energy security and potentially health benefits as well. Sure. So th there are lots of upsides, but we need to kind of take the first step and start looking ahead to what it might look like. 
Are politicians of all sides slow to do this because it's going to mean more taxes? I, I think it's a, a... Okay, so if I take from my own experience, when mm. we started this work in 2020, we had uh, in February a climate conference and we were looking at finally getting you know down to brass tacks, mm. thinking about what the, the costs were going to be and what this might look like for the, the economy and public finances. And we brought in a, a great um, climate scientist from uh, Lombardy, which was ironic because last yes. minute she had to cancel to a video. Where um, COVID hit first. Yes. Exactly. And so that we've kind of only gotten back properly to doing this work now. Mm. And it's been like three years lost of progress. And I, I think you could mirror that experience with lots of the civil service, lots sure. of departments, and lots of political parties as yeah, well. Good point, yeah. Not just in Ireland, but elsewhere. So we're, we're all kind of getting back to the table and saying, yeah. look, what are we going to do? So I, I have a lot of sympathy for them. I think part of it is just that this is uh, mind-blowingly hard to get your head around. There's yeah. so many angles to it, and it's hard to understand the climate science, let alone the public finance impact and the macro impacts. And it requires just tons of work yeah. uh, by lots of people to get it right. Yeah. But time to get on with it, you're saying. It, it really is, yeah. yeah. And just to return to the point that, that that I mentioned there, the inevitability seems to be that this is going to need taxes to increase to pay for, to pay for, pay the bills, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm loath to say that because we always get criticised for saying, sure, you yeah. know, we need to yeah. increase taxes. We're not saying that. We're, you know, it could be through spending cuts. Sure. And we're kind of neutral on that. We're, yeah. we're agnostic. You could have a smaller government. You could have a bigger government. Yeah. Now, you know, you could do it either way. But there is going to be an adjustment somewhere sure. that needs to be made. Well, maybe to put it another way, the money has to be found for the money has to be found somewhere. Exactly. It, it's it's more or less a hole in the public finances yeah. that's uh, going to emerge unless we do something. So you'll have to replace the taxes or you'll have to cut spending. Yeah. Um, there's no way around it. There is an air of ine inevitability to it. Sure. You know, we can't really avoid it. If we bury our heads in the sand, yeah. we'll probably end up playing, paying lots of fines or the equivalent of fines yeah, and credits yeah. um, and we'll still have to make the adjustment down the line Sure, and, and then it could get more costly uh, as uh, the longer you wait because usually if you think of the aging simulations we would have done in the past you can see that the earlier you act the cheaper these adjustments are sure. so we could have cut the costs of you know the overall adjustment for dealing with aging by about 40% mm. if uh, we just dealt with it head on yeah. um, but of course we saw the pension age increase was deferred. We don't see any action in terms of increasing the PRSI rate. There was yeah. a roadmap to do this. Uh, it was meant to be released earlier this year. We still haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of appetite to increase taxes or to announce them yeah. and to make big long-term commitments to increase taxes. And even if there was, it's hard to put much credibility or much stock in that because mm. the government of the day could turn around and say, well, actually, we're not going to increase sure. taxes. It's sure. difficult now. Yeah. Where do you stand on uh, carbon tax increases in the budget um, planned in to happen, but perhaps under some question now with prices going up elsewhere? Yeah, yeah so, I mean, this is, it's taken on a lot of traction as a big part mm. of the debate around climate. For us, looking at it just purely in the modelling, it's not a big uh, part of the public mm. finance picture. Um, it doesn't raise a huge amount. Sure. But, and it's going to dry up as well. So the plan is, Carbon taxes rise to about 100 euro a tonne by 2030. They start to change behaviour, push pe people away from carbon intensive activities. And then if it works, it, it raises less. 
Mm. So the tax base disappears. That's how it's meant to kind of work. So like it's like, like the cigarette tax, but it never it yeah. never quite fades out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But but if you think of that tax is one that we're meant to be bringing in and then watching disappear. But we're going to see these other much bigger taxes, like the excise duties yeah. on fossil fuels, uh, disappear. And we're going to see a lot of lot less VAT, a lot less motor t- tax, a lot less uh, vehicle registration tax. So, the, like, it's one part of the picture. Yeah. But we're going to see all these things disappear one way or another if we actually adapt and and move to a greener economy. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Talk to me, Eddie, about the budget next week. Obviously, we've been talking about the longer term issues and. The challenges facing the exchequer, but the immediate challenges are uh, to to draw up a budget for this year. The fiscal council has been critical of the government's decision to abandon the five percent ceiling on spending increases. The government argues that it's justified in doing this because inflation is is higher than expected when that rule was set. Do they have a point there? Uh, to, to an extent, um, and if it was just that, if it was just the one-year mm. increase slightly above, we might have been less concerned. But what we see is really a, a pattern and a signal of just repeated breaches mm. uh, in the spending rules. So it wasn't just that they set out to break it this year um, in the coming budget, uh, moving to a 6% increase versus a 5%. It was that in the first few years of the rule in, being in existence, they mm. had already given themselves a lot of wiggle room. So sure. it was... You know, it was going to be a 5% spending rule, but we'll do 5.5% in year one. Year two, we're going to do 6.5% because cost of living, it's high. Now we're looking at another 6% budget. But worse than that, it goes on out to 2026 that the, the rule is being broken every year. And this is already planned. So roll around. If you fast forward to the next budget, are they going to go even further again? So it's lost a lot of its credibility. We can't really say there's an anchor there that's going to keep sure. the public finances safe. And it acts like a speed limit. If you're, if you're going to, you know, try and keep the public finances safe, you should stick to it. It's going to otherwise lead to very tricky situations where you might have to reverse and pull back on some of the increases sure. you made because the revenues aren't there to finance it. Um, and so, so it's really that signal that the framework is missing. And we need that because... If you take the EU fiscal rules, a lot of people think these are still in the background. They'll work for Ireland. They're not working for Ireland. They, they really aren't acting as a major constraint on us. So the only uh, constraint we have, the only kind of framework we have to guide us is the national rule. Mm. Um, and if we don't have that, we really don't have anything. We're kind of just you know blowing with the wind. Okay. Um, the danger is that you know every budget we decide we need to go a little bit further for whatever reason, mm. um, and we don't have any anchor. So then it's completely unmoored, and that's the worry. Yeah. Government, I suppose, to put the to put their case would say, look, as I say, inflation is higher, and we're also going to put away billions uh, into a new wealth fund, stroke infrastructure fund. You know, what? what how much do you want us to save? Um, yeah, uh, there's well, a political reality here. So, so I suppose the two big things we need to run the public finances safely are the wealth fund. Mm-hmm. and the uh, the national spending rule, right? Okay. So if you stick to the speed limit um, and increase spending, net of taxes, we should say, yeah. so it's it's a net rule. Sure. If you want to do more, you can increase taxes. Yeah. And it's sustainably financing more spending. You can do more in the rule. Um, and what it would mean is that by sticking to that, you will run surpluses when you have an economy this tight. So when you have unemployment at a once in a generation low, like it is now, it's a 4.1%. It's been like this once in 70 years beforehand. Um, 
you're going to you're going to be running surpluses naturally because you'll be collecting more income tax, you'll be spending less on social welfare benefits, job seekers. Um, so you'll do well. And also the other side of it is we have all this corporation tax receipts that we're taking in. And so the work that we did on that is really quite shocking because you can see that it's just incredibly concentrated. There's a, about three multinationals regularly accounting for a third of those receipts. Um, six, six, uh, 60% is from just 10 corporate groups. Um, and if we take like what are the overall uh, uh, companies filing in Ireland, there's about nearly 200,000 mm. filing for corporation tax. So like the concentration is just really skewed mm. to, towards a handful. And it depends then, you know, do they change CEO? Does a certain product mm. do badly? What is the international tax environment like? There's going to be big risks and we don't have any control over these things really. Mm. Um, so the the smart thing, the safe and wise thing to do is to try and hive it off. And, and there's a real benefit there. So if you think of the three big challenges we have over the medium term, we have aging, we have climate, and we have uh, the corporation tax receipts and not kind of just funneling those into permanent uh, tax cuts and permanent spending increases. And you can actually solve a lot of the problems with the first two by just saving the cor corporation tax receipts, the excess bit. So if you were to stick to the spending rule, you'd naturally see this stuff saved. If you put it into a fund, the benefit of that is you can create a new revenue stream. So it's almost like creating a new tax out of nothing. You know, mm -hmm. the, the windfalls are coming in, park them in a, a fund, if you took two years worth of the windfalls, you'd have 24 billion. And the types of returns we get from sovereign wealth funds are about 5%, uh, you know, typically. If you took that, that's 1.2 billion. That's a new tax created almost out of nothing. Um, we, ha we haven't had to put the pain on any household or any one individual or any one business. Or increase the income tax rate or whatever, yeah. Exactly. And, and so the income tax rate, if you increase it by one percentage point at the lower band, that's about one billion. Mm. So it's the equivalent of that after just two years of saving these windfalls. And what we could do is basically erode a load of the costs that are going to fall in the next generation of taxpayers um, from aging, uh, for example, and pensions, um, purely by just saving this money and using the returns on it. Um, so, so it makes a lot of sense and it takes you away from the risks of that money just disappearing if you save it in the short term um, and just draw down on the revenue that it generates uh, to solve some of the problems. So it really, we see those two elements, the, the spending rule and the wealth fund has been critical to just running the public finances sustainably and soundly over the long term. Great. We'll see what happens next week. Uh, Eddie Casey, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. We'll be back after this short break to find out why insolvency rates are rising among firms in Ireland. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. I'm joined on the podcast now by Ken Tyrrell, partner at PwC Ireland, to discuss the findings of their latest report on insolvencies and restructuring in Irish business. Ken, PwC published its latest restructuring update earlier this week. Take us through the headline figures, please. So, Cliff, um, headline figures for the year are worth 
33% ahead of last year for the year to date. Okay. Uh, so in kind of actual numbers, that's uh, approximately 470 for the year to date this year, whereas last year was only 350. So we're about a third ahead of last year. Okay. Um, that's probably the big finding we've got over the past quarter. Is there a bit of a post-COVID factor there, in other words, where insolvency is low coming out of COVID? Or what? how does it compare with, I suppose, normal yeah. normal times? So I suppose everything's been a bit abnormal coming out of uh, COVID and the yeah. pandemic. Um, the insolvencies actually went down to a bizarrely kind of abnormally low level. Yeah. Uh, we do a metric where it's per 10,000 and it went as low as 14 per 10,000. During uh, COVID. Dur- during COVID. And uh, say 2019 pre-COVID would have been 36 per okay. 10,000. Okay. Our average over the last 20 years is 50 per 10,000. Okay. And in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, it would have been over 100 per 10,000. So, okay, that's a good context, yeah. yeah. So I suppose companies were getting wads of money from the government during COVID, so maybe that that kept some going. Are we seeing a bit of a fallout now as the taps are turned off and normal life resumes? Yeah, there, there was a very generous package put together for uh, SMEs um, during the end of uh, the pandemic and kind of emerging from that. We did some research about two years ago and we estimated 4,500 companies had been saved from insolvency um, due to the supports that had been put in place by the government. So we estimated 4,500 had been saved. Mm. We are seeing a bit of an uptick now over the last 12 to 18 months, but we are coming from quite a low base. Um, What would be your expectation for the year? Q4 always tends to pick up a little bit. So we're saying somewhere between 650 to 700, um, which... Again, by historical norms, is on the lower end. Um, a normalised number, given these days we have about two hundred sixty thousand companies, would be more in the region of fifteen, sixteen hundred. Okay. Okay. So. so not too bad. So what sectors? Can you give us any breakdown of the kind of sectors or regions where you expect uh, or where, where you're seeing insolvencies take place? So. For the year to date, uh, two sectors account for 40% of all insolvencies, and that's construction and retail. Okay. So um, there are definitely two sectors where we're going to see more insolvencies, I think, over the next okay. three to six months. Um, there's approximately 116 construction insolvencies and 78 retail. Okay. Um, I think retail is going to have a challenge in Q4. There is a softening in the economy and yeah. there's some news out today about the Eurozone retail figure has been down a bit. So I think Q4 is going to be very big for the retailers. Okay. Um, and if they don't have a good Q4, I think that's where you'll see some more restructuring okay. in so the early part of next year. I was going to say, after Christmas, we could see some 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 white flags rolled up perhaps. Yeah, and that kind of ties into the revenue debt warehousing is um, May 24 is the deadline for companies okay. to reach an agreement. Come back, come back to that in a minute, but... Yeah. Maybe slightly surprising to see construction companies included in that, uh, because obviously the sector is is strong. Yeah, sector is very busy. What's what, what's going on there? So what you're seeing there is kind of two parts of that. So the residential housing and um, the issues that are arising is where there's been inflation on construction products, okay. and that's feeding into now the profitability of some um, projects and developments where the costs have just actually end up being higher. So some have just got their sums wrong. Yes, and yeah. it's kind of squeezed the profit margins really thin or okay. into nearly loss-making situations if there's a fixed-price contract. Sure, interesting, yeah. Uh, commercial real estate is probably more of an international issue and yeah. a kind of a hangover from COVID. Uh, we are seeing a lot of restructuring actually in commercial real estate at the moment. Okay. Um, the big thing is when is the refinancing and the ability to refinance uh, for a lot of those entities, which um, 
tend to be very specific uh, right around office building. And I was going to say, I presume a lot of that is is linked to the office market, where we've seen activity kind of certainly in terms of deals and uh, such like grind to a halt a bit in the in the third quarter. Yeah, suffers from the same issues with the inflation of costs again, eroding profitability, yeah. and then lenders are just kind of looking at their position and trying to figure out where they are now, um, and in terms of where the equity and the, the developer is in in that process. Sure. Um, like in the last couple of weeks, I think Meta handed back, paid off quite yeah. a big lease in London, which is kind of sending the sign to the market, and that's a big part of the Irish market, kind of US multinationals yes. here. So. I uh, know a lot of people are looking at that deal in kind of view of the kind of ongoing current developments of somebody's halfway through a project at the moment. Yeah. Um, who is the end tenant going to be yeah, if it's yeah. already signed up? Um, so a bit of a shake to confidence, I suppose you might stay. Yeah, and it's been a kind of buoyant couple of years, so it probably hasn't come to a shock. And a lot of people are kind of still mm-hmm. have come through the global financial crisis or so are w- kind of more aware of the issues than maybe um, they have been in the past. So it's not coming as an absolute shock to a lot of people yeah. um, in the sector. Yeah. Are there any kind of regional trends, Ken? Um, obviously, retail is in, <clears throat> I suppose, bricks and mortar retail is in difficulty uh, generally. Um, is Dublin, are they mostly in Dublin, your insolvencies, or around the country? Or yeah. What's uh, the pattern? Historically, the insolvencies have roughly been about 50% in Dublin, okay. uh, the total number. It's actually been 60% in the last quarter. Okay. Um, what we're seeing is a good few, the, the regional issues are probably mostly around hospitality and yeah. the smaller end, and actually more pubs and restaurants yeah. rather than hotels actually okay, are performing quite yeah. well. So yeah. it's more your kind of classic SME, yeah. restaurant and pubs, and kind of similar issues um, to Dublin where a lot of the city centre hospitalities are coming under a bit more pressure, whereas okay. the suburban um, pubs and restaurants are actually trading quite well. Okay, that's interesting. So obviously the working from home trend is supporting the suburbia while the city centre is, is struggling. De- definitely element of that. And less kind of big nights out, your typical kind of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday now for a large city centre hospitality yeah. isn't quite there anymore. They're maybe getting one, one and a half of those. Yeah. So they're just having to kind of right-size their business um, yeah, accordingly. It can be a bit dead as well. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of uh, of regional businesses, you're saying again the hospitality sector. So presumably that's, or am I right in saying maybe that's pubs and restaurants who were supported by the government through COVID, but are now feeling a bit of a chill wind. Yeah, I, I mean you can trade on once you're kind of obviously dealing with your day to day costs, but yeah. we're finding some of them have maybe debt warehousing built up, or they've had a couple of issues with creditors and lenders, yeah. and the revenue have been very patient for a couple of years. Yeah. But it's just when a business owner looks at their balance sheet and they're going, okay, I can trade kind of day to day at the moment, but I'm not really making any breakthrough on the historic debts. And then they kind of come to realization that, look, either it needs some sort of restructuring or we're just going to have to start again um, with with a different business. So that's kind of the issue. The legacy debts are beginning to kind of become an issue. Yeah. Talking of the legacy debts, obviously you were... You were speaking there about the May 2024 deadline on warehouse debts from the revenue. Just just explain a bit of the background of that to us, because obviously that's a hangover from, from COVID as well. Yeah, so in total, there's about 2.2 billion of uh, parked um, revenue taxes, mm-hmm. uh, taxes due to the revenue from COVID. And there was an extension of that deadline was actually earlier mm-hmm. this year. It was moved out until May 24. Mm-hmm. So business happened businesses have an opportunity to reach an agreement with the revenue on a phased payment um, agreement, a PPA. Um, when you kind of segregate out 
the businesses that owe that money, it's actually in, interesting. There's about 6,000 businesses owe 1.9 of that 2.2 billion. Okay. So on average, 300K each. Okay. And then you've got a really long tail where there's 57,000 odd companies owing a relatively small amount of okay. 5,000 each. Okay. So we think the focus is going to be on that 6,000 right. who owe somewhere in the region of 300,000 okay. on average each. And they're in discussions already. And it's, it's if they can reach an agreement with the revenue and the revenue are working their way through that, that'll be their kind of primary focus. But if they just can't do that, they're going to probably have to look at some sort of formal restructuring. Okay. Do, uh, we, we don't really know who those companies are because obviously the revenue only releases limited information. Is that is that correct? Correct, yeah. Other than just anecdotally speaking yeah. to people, no, there's no, it's anonymized data, so. But are, we're talking about, I presume, with that kind of money in play, we're talking about medium-sized Irish businesses across a range of sectors. Would that be Would that be fair? Yes, and it'll be the ones that were most impacted by the pandemic, of okay. course, because that's where they originated. So, so consumer-facing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, hospitality will be in that again, yeah. of course. So anybody who kind of had to shut down yeah, during the pandemic is, yeah. is nearly um, inevitably going to be in that. Some of them would have traded reasonably well, I presume, over the past 18 months. Yeah, hospitality has had a good kind of bounce back, um, mm. probably in the, la- in, in the initial 12 months out, where there was quite a good kind of bounce yeah. back spend. We're seeing signs that's begin to tail off over the last six to nine months as kind of interest rates Okay, begin to yeah. take their toll. So they had a really good kind of 12 months post-pandemic yeah. with a little bit of softening now um, okay. this year. Are the revenue being understanding, I suppose, in terms of uh, they want their money back, obviously. Uh, we're talking about, what taxes are we talking about? We're talking about VAT. It, it'll be all tax heads. All taxes, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, they want their money back. That's what the revenue do. Mm. Uh, but equally, I presume they don't want to push their their revenue sources to the wall. So I presume they're, what are they doing? They're agreeing repayment plans with people as opposed, they don't expect the money on day one at May 2024, but at the same time, they're looking for a reasonable visibility, I presume. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's it. Um, They're calling it a PPA, phase payment agreement. Um, And they have been, in fairness, very patient over the last couple of years. There there hasn't been any pressure on kind of, there hasn't been too many winding up orders on businesses issued by the revenue. So I think they are giving every business a good and fair opportunity to reach that agreement mm. uh, between May and 24. But then at some stage, um, they will be looking to demand their the, the kind of amount owing back. Okay. And in many circumstances then, what you might see is the company directors will actually end up with the decision of, can we trade on, okay. um, given um, the kind of uh, debts on our balance sheet. And obviously that's, there are, there are legal constraints to that, I presume, and not being seen to trade recklessly, et cetera, et cetera, that feed into that decision. Yeah, I mean, it, once you're kind of like, you need to be careful about trading recklessly where they don't think there's any kind of prospect of survival or kind of trading profitably into the future. So it kind of brings that to a head. And for a lot of businesses coming out of the pandemic, they were just worried about survival yeah. uh, for the first year, yeah. year and a half. And maybe the business is back on a kind of good day-to-day footing now. But the balance sheet debts have kind of um, built up. Now, there is processes like SCARP and examinership that will cleanse a balance sheet. Yeah. Um, but your business has to be kind of make sense on a kind of yeah. profitable basis day to day to kind of avail of those. I was going to ask you about SCARP. Obviously, we're, we're familiar with examinership. It's been around in the Irish scene for a while, been very useful, but obviously a high cost option and, and seen as 
maybe not viable for, for smaller companies because of the legal costs in particular. Tell us about this SCARP scheme and small, what is it, small companies? Administrative rescue process. Administrative rescue process, <laughs> yes, great acronym. There hasn't been a great take-up of it so far, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. But there may be over the next while from what you're saying. Um, yeah, it, it has been a relatively slow uptake and that's probably more to do with the kind of economy has been performing relatively strongly in Ireland over the last yeah. couple of years. So there hasn't been a huge demand for it, which has kind of given a runway for the process to be tested over the last couple of years. So yeah. in total at the moment, there's been 40 SCAR process. So yeah. we're beginning to road test the process and kind of iron out a few quirks. Yeah. It is designed to be kind of a simpler, more efficient and less court-involved process than examinership. Yeah. So I think it does work. It is going to be suitable for SMEs on the smaller side who don't want to go into the high court for an examinership. But it's probably more on the demand side at the moment, why the uptake hasn't been there, okay. rather than actually too many issues with the process itself. Okay. Do we expect, as companies face this, day of reckoning, our, our, our period of reckoning with the revenue, that we see more small companies take this route? Yeah, we, we kind of ask ourselves, what's the population of companies that may be in some sort of yeah. distress? So we had estimated 4,500 coming out of the pandemic yeah. had probably a vital insolvency. The central bank issued a report last year that said somewhere in the region of 10,000 okay. we needed some sort of um, restructuring. And then when we look at the 6,000 who owe 300,000 or more, you're kind of coming out a number of around five to 6,000 yeah. yeah. okay. that are likely to need some sort of restructuring. Now, that can be consensual. That can be an agreement with creditors, lenders, at the kind of more formal end, uh, SCARP or an examinership. Okay. Um, but it feels like that's kind of the population of companies who are going to be at the more critical end okay. um, of this. And it won't be a kind of a cliff edge May 24. It'll be more kind of over the year um, in, in total, um, unless... So, so unless you, you might expect your insolvency number to go up a bit next year? I would think so. Uh, we... we we're seeing some numbers across Europe as well, which um, other jurisdictions are beginning to pick up a little bit over the last couple of months. The, the UK has been consistently twice the Irish rate yeah. for the past couple of years. And we're just seeing that from some of our European colleagues as well. Over the last three, four months, it's picking up. But again, the context is from a relatively low base. So sure. we're still not even back up to a normal level. So um, yeah. that, that's kind of where it's coming from. Okay. Ken Tierley, you've given us a great insight there, I think, into what we can expect over the next year and, and, and some things to watch. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Cliff. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Ken Tyrrell and Eddie Casey for joining me on the podcast. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsors EY for their continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Cliff Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY. Building a better working world. <laughs>